Our text for today is going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I hope you're there. We're going to go ahead and read together. This is the word of the living God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we come before you, humbly before you, Lord, wanting to really remember and understand that you're not like other gods. You're not just an idea. You are the ancient of days. You're the God who spoke from the burning bush. You're the God who spoke all things into existence from nothing. You're the God who, of justice, of mercy, of wrath, and of love. That's the God we approach this morning. And Lord, we, we do so asking for you to, to search our hearts and know us Reveal to us by the Spirit areas in our lives that need to be confessed and repented of, that you would bring to the top, forefront of our minds ways that we don't glorify Christ and help us to love Him more. Help us through this text to eagerly anticipate His return while we look back at what He did in His first coming. Please bless the proclamation of your word May I preach faithfully as I ought. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Today marks the beginning of what is known as Advent. No, it is not a uniquely Catholic idea. And Advent is more than just the little dog treat calendars that you can buy at Costco. Perhaps you're familiar with Advent and perhaps not. But just a, a bit of a brief overview, it's essentially the time leading up to Christmas where we take some extra time to reflect on the quote-unquote reason for the season. I don't know about you, but I personally love the Christmas season. I am of the mind, and I have the pulpit, so you can't fight me on this, that Christmas music can begin being played at November one. Okay, so that's what it is. I love Christmas music. I love the themed lighting, the themed drinks and snacks and all of those things. I love the Christmas time. There's just something delightfully whimsical about this time of year. But if we're not careful, we as Christians can quickly buy into the consumerism and commercialism that is prevalent in America this time of year. Thus, observing Advent 
is a great way for us to keep our minds on things above, to keep Christ at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. What does Advent mean? Advent is from the Latin adventus, which is from the Greek parousia. Whenever you find that in your Bible, it's the word coming. It simply means coming. So during Advent, we look back at Christ's first Advent, or His first coming, and we look forward to Christ's second Advent, or His second coming. It is a season of feeling the weight of waiting for His second coming, while remembering the great hope, peace, and joy that we have because of His first coming. To be sure, we should always be conscious of that tension, shouldn't we? But Advent is simply a time where we can be even more focused on Christ, or at least where we ought to be even more focused upon Him, simply because of the season. So today, we, you and I, have the unique privilege of living between the Advents. The people of God, as we just sang, they were the Israelites in the Old Covenant. They were always waiting for Christ's first Advent. They didn't know that Christ is who they were waiting for. They just knew they were waiting for a Messiah. And so generation after generation, they would long together as a people for the fulfillment of the promises of God in the coming one, finally coming to restore Israel back to prominence. But today, we have the unique privilege of now living in the time where Christ has come and that promise has been fulfilled. But yet, even we, along with all of God's people throughout redemptive history, we still are waiting for the final fulfillment of the promises of God. As the writer of Hebrews says, we are watching as the day approaches. And it is quickly approaching, my friends. There are three major sections of this passage. It's verses 19 through 22, verse 23, and then verses 24 and 25. But our outline is going to look just a tad bit differently because what we're going to look at is living in the benefits of Christ's first coming while confidently hoping for His second coming. Said another way, we are going to be looking back to the person of Christ so that we can live in the work of Christ and look forward to the return of of Christ. So let's begin by looking back to the person of Christ, verses 19 through 21. If you would look at it with me as we read it once again. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. The author here begins this section in a very familiar way with the all-important, not-to-be-overlooked word, therefore. As I stated a bit ago, this is a section where he's focusing on the person and work and return of Christ, but he's doing so by 
having a shift in the teaching of his letter. Up until now, he's largely been focused on theology and doctrine of the person of Jesus. But now in this section, he's going to summarize his teaching from the first 10 chapters of Hebrews as he begins to apply the text to our lives. How do we know that? Because he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places and so on and so forth. There are key themes that the author wants us to call to mind as he begins to apply the text. And what are they? They're found there in verses 19 through 21. But it's important for us to know a little bit about the background of this letter in order for us to properly understand this text. Since we're just kind of parachuting into Hebrews chapter 10, we need to know what's going on here. It's important to know that this letter is entitled Hebrews, not because it is it says anywhere in the letter that it's written to the Hebrews, but throughout church history, it has largely been regarded as the letter to the Hebrews. And why is that? Because it is full of Old Testament um, teaching. It's full of uh, mention of, on the, of the sacrificial system. And the whole point of this letter is to show that Christ has instituted a new covenant And this new covenant is vastly superior than the old covenant that was under the law of Moses that included the sacrificial system and so on and so forth. We see that in the opening of the letter in chapter 1 where he says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In saying, our fathers, the author is making mention of the patriarchs of the Jewish tradition. So Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth. That opening also immediately shows his audience that he's going to be dealing with this new way, this all-important figure in redemptive history. And who is it? It's the Son of God. His aim in this letter is to show his audience that Jesus is superior to the angels, to the law of Moses. He's a better sacrifice and so on and so forth. A better prophet, a better priest. He is the better mediator of a better covenant. He uses words like confidence and hope and drawing near several times throughout this letter, showing us that this new way of interacting with God through His Son truly is the better way. Because now we have confidence before God. We have a better hope in God because of the work of the Son of God. For you and I, this letter is a bit difficult to fully grasp if we're not familiarizing ourselves with Old Testament teaching, Old Covenant, how the Old Covenant worked, how the law of Moses and the sacrificial system, how all of those things worked. We were not around to witness any of that, were we? We were not around to witness any of the failures of the kings and the judges that God appointed to oversee the nation of Israel or the prophets that God raised up to call His people to repentance. We weren't alive during the sacrificial system when the regular layman didn't have access to the presence of God. You and I have never known that. 
We never saw that we needed to have a mediator in the Levitical priesthood to go to God on our behalf, and that only once a year during the Day of Atonement. So you and I, we are in danger of coming to a text like what we're looking at today, or just the book in itself, and missing the beauty of it simply because of the history that's going on here. So we would certainly be tempted to say, what on earth does this have to do with Advent season? Well, church, should we not spend time reflecting on what God sent His Son into the world to do? And what is the significance of that? Why would the imperishable take on a perishable perishable body? Why would the Ancient of Days become a baby? Why? Surely this is a profound purpose or for a profound purpose. So what did Christ come to do in His first advent? This is where we're looking to the person of Christ and what He accomplished in His first advent. He came first and foremost to bring us to God. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He, meaning Jesus, opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. If you remember back to around Easter, I I preached a section of Hebrews 10, just before this section actually, as a part of a series about the necessity and sufficiency of the gospel. We talked about aspects of the old sacrificial system, namely the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the people would bring a sacrifice to the temple. The priests would sacrifice the animals on behalf of the people. And the high priest would take the blood from the sacrifices into the holy place, which was behind a curtain in the temple that only the high priest was able to go into, and that only once a year during the Day of Atonement. But further, even though it was only once a year, even the priest had to make a sacrifice for his own sins, for him to be able to enter the most holy place. This is where the mercy seat was, where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on it to atone for his sins and all of the sins of the people. So the average Jew was not able to enter into the presence of God. This was represented by the holy place. That only once a year, the only the high priest, the, the man who God chose, could go into the place where God's presence symbolically dwelt, and he could only do that in the manner of God's choosing, that is, by a sacrifice. So not just anyone could come before God who simply wanted to come to God. It required the blood and the chosen priest. The Israelites were God's covenant people, weren't they? But if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you see that they were constantly backsliding. And they were failing to live up to their end of the bargain of the covenant. God would judge His people for their collective apostasy. A remnant would stay near the Lord, and on and on and on the cycle would go. God would speak to His people through the prophets As the writer of Hebrews mentioned in the opening, that long ago God spoke to His people through the prophets, and He gave this sacrificial system to His people. Why? 
to teach them of his holiness and their depravity. To teach them how holy God is and how detestable the sin that they commit is because it requires the death of something on their behalf. It was also giving them a way to be in relationship with God, yet they desecrated even the sacrificial system. It came to a point many times throughout the history of Israel when the people were not coming to the Lord with their hearts, but they were merely obeying the letter of the law. My friends, let us always be careful that we not be tempted to think that obedience is simply obeying commands. Obedience comes from the heart. Obedience begins with a change of the heart. In their minds, perhaps they thought they could sin all they want as long as they would bring God a sacrifice that would appease Him. This is why we find such astonishing statements like in Jeremiah 6.20, When God says their burnt offerings are not acceptable and their sacrifices were not pleasing to him. Or in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11, when he says, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. He tells his people to bring no more vain offerings that his soul hates their appointed feasts. And then in verse 17, it says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is a way of saying that they are guilty before him. They are not drawing near with a sincere heart Or perhaps even more starkly, the way that he says it in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps I will not listen. Could you imagine that for a moment, church? That here you are, as the people of Israel, following the commands of the sacrificial system, holding the appointed feasts, bringing your sacrifices, and God says, I don't want to see it, and I don't want to hear it, and I'm not going to listen to you when you pray to me. Could you imagine what that would do to your heart and to your mind? Yet, in the absolutely undeserved kindness of God, they would receive prophecies of a future restoration back to God. Though they had apostatized and turned their backs to God, God would bring them back to Himself. I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 with me. Ezekiel chapter 36. And when you get there, go to verse 16. And I'm going to go ahead and begin reading. Ezekiel 36, 16. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. 
Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord is giving a very brief summary of the history of Israel and their backsliding. Israel had committed great sin, absolutely, in pursuing other idols. But what's God most concerned with? That His name has been profaned among the nations. Look at verse 22. What's He going to do? Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. My goodness, what is he going to do? Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Are you kidding? The Israelites have profaned the name of God among the nations. And what's he going to do? Save them. This is the grace of God on ridiculous, marvelous, radical display. Israel has absolutely profane the name of God, His precious, holy, glorious name. And what does He say? I'm going to cleanse you. And I'm going to put My Spirit in you so that you will obey Me. What does that indicate to us? That without God's Spirit, we cannot truly obey the Lord. All that we can do is follow the letter of the law. The same way that a person follows a speed limit that says 65, anyone can do that. That's following to the letter of the law. But driving carefully because you genuinely are concerned for other people, that's an entirely different thing now, isn't it? And following the Lord's laws by the letter, just what's written in black and white is one thing. But following the Lord your God because you love Him is another thing entirely And he was going to cause his people to be able to do this. Jeremiah 31, he says it this way, Behold, the days are coming. Do you see why they were waiting? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them. With the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Do you see this new and better way that Christ was coming to make? No longer was everyone going to say to each other, Know the Lord. They would all know Him. Because God's going to put His Spirit within them, writing His laws upon their heart so that they are obedient from the inside out. Now there are many prophecies in the Old Testament of this coming day when the Lord will make a new covenant with His people. They broke the old covenant in their apostasy, but this new covenant will be unbreakable because it will be instituted and kept by God Himself. How? By Him putting His own Spirit within people. That is absolutely amazing. Now all of this is to say that this is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to here. That we were all far from God, unable to approach Him, but God has Himself come to bring us back to Himself. He saw that we couldn't do it. and said, I will do it for them. Though they have profaned my name, I will vindicate my holiness by making them clean. In other words, to fulfill, at least in part, what was prophesied before. We now have access to the Father We can now confidently enter the holy place. It doesn't need to be the high priest. Once a year, you and I are able to go into the holy place, metaphorically, of course, meaning the presence of God. Why? Because of the coming of the person of Jesus. Just as the high priest before could not enter the holy place without having first spilled the blood of an animal, Now we cannot enter the holy place without the spilled blood of the Lamb. But that blood has been spilled, my friends. It has been spilled once and for all. Because Christ was put forth as our sacrifice, a new and living way has been opened through the curtain, meaning His flesh, His body, His sacrifice. This reminds us, doesn't it, of what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What is, how does he finish it? No one can come to the Father except through me. What is he telling us exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here? That Jesus is the new and living way. To come into the holy place. And thank you, Jesus, for doing this. Have you ever wondered why we don't have one temple in the whole world in which all Christians must make a pilgrimage to once a year? Or why we don't continue to offer animal sacrifices? This is precisely why. It is because the new and living way has been opened for us through Christ. But he also came to become the mediator between God and man. Look at verse 21. 
since we have a great priest over the house of God. In the Old Covenant, it was the high priest who would bring the sacrifices into the holy place to atone for our sins and approach God on our behalf. In the New Covenant, Christ Himself is our great high priest who once and for all sacrificed Himself, making a way for all of us to enter into the holy place to approach God Himself. Christ then is our mediator And the only mediator we have, my friends. This is why we do not pray to Mary or to saints or to angels. Because Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And if you look back at verse 12, it tells us that after Christ had offered himself as a sacrifice, he went and sat down at the right hand of God. He went and sat down down. After a long day of work and you come home, what's the one thing you want to do that maybe you're not ever able to do? Sit down. I want to sit down. It indicates a job that is finished. Back in chapter 7, we find that Christ is always making intercession for us. So when he's seated at the right hand, he's not sitting there twiddling his thumbs. Do you know what he's doing at the right hand of the Father? He is making intercession for all of the saints. That means you, if you belong to him this morning. What great comfort can be found in knowing that Jesus Christ himself is praying for you. My friends, these prayers will be answered. So then, the writer of Hebrews brings this to a point, and that brings us to our second point of living in the work of Christ. How do we do this? Starting at verse 21, the first thing that we need to do is draw near to God. He says, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, if Christ came to bring you to God and he came to become the mediator between God and man, then come to God. Christ made a way for you to go to God. Don't stand out in the doorway or in the hallway or in the parlor room. Go in through that way that He made for you and go to God. Christ came as a baby. Think of what's being said here. Christ came as a baby. Babies are the most vulnerable people on our planet. They can't talk. They can't defend themselves. They can't walk away. They are utterly reliant upon their parents to keep them alive. Yet Christ Jesus came as a vulnerable child. But he didn't remain a child, did he? He eventually grew physically to become an adult man so that he could suffer and die for his people. What is the point I'm making? God orchestrated all of this before the foundation of the world. He went to great lengths to draw you to himself. So then draw near to God. He's made every preparation for you. And when you come to Him, draw near to Him with a true heart. Another way of saying this is with a sincere 
heart. Not with pretense. Not in disbelief. Because he says in full assurance of faith. You're coming near to God, not because of any merit on your behalf, not because you are deserving of an audience with the king. None of us are. But you're drawing near to God in assurance of faith that you stand before him based on the merits of Christ Jesus himself. So that when you draw near, as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, he can say, Father... Forgive them again. Father, forgive them again. And do you know what, church? Jesus Christ never tires of asking his Father to forgive you because he's paid for your sins. And the Father never tires of forgiving. You know why? Because Jesus has paid for your sins. What a beautiful truth this is. He says it this way in chapter 4, verse 16, to let us draw near, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Do you know what you get when you draw near to the Lord based on the merits of Jesus Christ? Mercy and grace to help in the time of need. And when is a time of need? every nanosecond of your life because he upholds you by the power of his word. Your breath itself is in the palm of his hand and every single second that you continue to live is an undeserved mercy of God and every blessing that he showers upon you is an undeserved grace of God. So then why not would we, why would we not draw near to God? And thankfully, we have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water because of the finished work of our great high priest. Emphasis here on finished work. You do not add one single thing to the work of Christ. He did it all. That work is finished as the fulfillment of God's prophecies We have seen and know that God is faithful to his promises, which brings us to the next thing, the next aspect of living in the work of Christ. Let us then hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What's the reason? For he who promised is faithful. There are many in the recorded history of Israel's apostasy that were found to not be holding fast to their confession. And there are many in church history, even today, who fill the seats inside of churches who have been found to not be holding fast to their confession. Our lives will bring to the light whether one or the other is true. When he's speaking of holding fast our confession of hope, our confession of hope is Jesus Christ. He is our hope of glory. He is our hope of being justified in the presence of God. This is just another way of saying, hold fast to your confession in Christ. And how will we know whether or not we are holding fast? The word itself will help shed some light on what is being meant here. 
It's found in the parable of the four soils. And let's just give you a very brief rundown of the parable of the four soils. There is a sower sowing seed on four different soils. Seed falls on one that is instantly taken away by the birds. That soil is likened to those who are not at all receptive to the gospel. So Satan swoops in and takes the seed of the word away. The second soil was rocky. The seed falls on that ground and it begins to grow, but it quickly withers away. This one is those who receive the word with joy, but they have no root. So they believe for a time, but eventually they fall away during times of testing. The third soil has thorns. The seed grows up, but eventually the thorns choke out the plant. This soil represents those who hear the word, but eventually they also fall away because the cares and riches and pleasures of this life choke out the word. But it's the fourth soil that grows up and bears fruit. In other words, the true believer. Jesus says of this soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and they bear fruit with patience. In other words, just because Christ has opened a new way for us, just because we are in a new era, a new dispensation, if you will, of God's dealings with mankind, this does not mean that all you have to do is raise your hand to go to heaven and then live your life however you see fit until Jesus comes back. No, we must hold fast our confession of hope. Or as Jesus said, we must hold fast in an honest and good heart and then bear fruit with patience. We are a church here that happily proclaims the sovereignty of God in salvation, divine election, happily heralding the doctrines of grace. But even the most staunch Calvinist on the planet agrees that God is sovereign and man has a responsibility to believe. God is sovereign over who is saved and man has a responsibility to believe. God is the one who will sustain you to the very end, but you are also responsible for believing until the very end. Do you see that tension? It's both of them. In the five points of the doctrines of grace, this is what's called the perseverance of the saints. That you will persevere until the end. That those who are saved will remain saved until the end. But some prefer to say the preservation of the saints. In other words, that those who are saved will be kept saved. In very simple terms, what I'm saying is that we believe that God makes you a Christian and you must believe in Christ. We believe that God keeps you a Christian and you must also cling to Christ. This theme is also prevalent in this letter to the Hebrews as clearly the writer knows full well the recorded history of Israel's apostasy and he wants to make clear under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that just because we are in a better covenant does not mean that we can be unfaithful to this covenant just like those who came before us. No, instead, you and I must hold fast our confession of hope 
You must continue to believe until the very last breath. I said earlier that hope is a prevalent theme in this letter, but hope is one of those words that just becomes Christianese, doesn't it? What is hope, and what is hope referring to here? The most common meaning of hope is to desire something eagerly with the sense that you will receive what you are desiring. And built into hope is the idea of waiting. That's everybody's favorite thing to do, isn't it? You love waiting, don't you? That was a joke. You do not hope for what you have. You are hoping for something in the future. You do not need to be a Christian to hope in things, though, do you? I was, and you don't need to only use hope in a Christian way. I was hoping the Cowboys would win on Thanksgiving. And they dashed my hopes against the rocks. Children this time of year, they're hoping that all of their wish list will be under the Christmas tree. Parents this time of year are hoping that wish list is small and it will not do too much damage to the wallet. Yet, there is something unique about Christian hope. Christian hope can be said to be an expectant longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. It is an expectant longing. In other words, we are waiting eagerly, but expectantly We expect God to do what He said He would do, whether it be expectantly longing for righteousness, as it says in Galatians 5, expectantly longing for glory, Colossians 1.27, or hoping for eternal life, Titus 1.2. We are expectantly longing for the fulfillment of these desires based on the confidence that we have in God's character. In other words, Christian hope is not made up of a collection of wishes. Christian hope is made up of a collection of God's promises. God's promises are sure to come to pass because of God's character, who He is. Thus, our hope will not be left empty. We need only to wait. And the waiting is always the hardest part, isn't it? The author says in another place in this letter, you have need of endurance. And I think that is fitting here as well. To hold fast to your confession of hope is to endure in your hoping. Enduring when it looks like hope is lost. Enduring when it looks like God has forsaken you. Because you know He hasn't because He said that He will never leave you. This is what God's people have always done. They have always hoped in the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, we do not have any promises to cling to that we will be rich or that if you are currently financially well off, that you'll remain that way. We don't have any promises of God that, to cling to that you will be healed of your illnesses and diseases or that if you're already healthy, that you'll remain that way. We don't have any promises of God that all will go well in this life, that eventually you'll be able to sort of coast through life. We have no promises like that. But you know what promises we do have? That one day Christ will return and that He will take His people home. We do have promises that when we are in glory, God Himself will wipe away our tears. 
that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because this world will have passed away. We do have promises that until then, God will be with us always and He will sustain us through all that He ordains for our lives. And guess what? We can hold fast to this hope because our hope is in the unchangeable, incorruptible character of God Himself, the God who promises is faithful. Let us also gather with God's people. Quickly here, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love in God's good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We went through a very interesting time as a nation recently, didn't we? At the beginning of this whole pandemic, when everything was shutting down, here even at this church, we shut down for a short time. And because of that, there was an explosion of this idea of online church. Let's just make this short and simple. There is no such thing as online church. You can watch a sermon online. You can listen to music online. But you cannot attend church you cannot gather with a body of believers on the internet. The word here is, let us not neglect to meet together. Now, I know that there are some apps called Meet. You can do a meet on an application on the internet, but that is not what is meant here. In order to practice this text, you have to gather with other believers he says, don't neglect the gathering together with other believers, as is the habit of some. We live in West Texas where softball practice and soccer practice often takes precedence over attending church, doesn't it? What would that be? Neglecting the meeting together. We live in a time where anything gets in the way of, oh man, you know what? Spilled my coffee, I better not go. We live in a time where we quickly neglect the meeting together. And you know why? Because we have largely viewed church as a spectator sport. You can, if all your view of church is listening to some music and being entertained by a motiv motivational message, absolutely you can do that online. But what is church? It is gathering together to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and encouraging each other as we see the day approaching. You can't do that online, my friends. You can't do that over the phone. You do that by getting up, taking a shower, putting clothes on, getting in your car, driving to a local assembly, and getting off of your vehicle and going inside of that building and practicing this text. That is how we do this. In other words, church is not a spectator sport. You're in the game. You have a uniform on. You're involved. You're a part of it. Why? Because God calls us to it. Why? Because we need it. You and I desperately need other Christians to watch our lives to say, so that we can be accountable and say, I think I'm a Christian. Could you watch my life and tell me if I'm being a Christian or not? 
Could you pay attention to how I live and tell me, am I being a Christian or not? And then we can stir each other up when we are not living worthy of our calling. But we cannot do that without gathering together. Moreover, there has never been a Christian that's ever walked outside of perhaps the Apostle Paul, but even then not. There has never been a Christian who is able to do it on his own. God has designed you, if you are in Christ, He has designed you to be a part of the body. Lastly, we look forward to the return of Christ. This is the last way that we can live between the Advents. As we look forward to the return of Christ, he says, all the more as you see the day approaching. And this is another layer of our motivation to apply the rest of this text to our lives, isn't it? Is that the coming one is coming soon. And he will hold us accountable for all that he has given us. The people of God under the old covenant lived with the hope of the first advent. The people of God under the new covenant live in the hope of Christ that he brought in his first advent while hoping for his second advent. With every single day that passes, eternity is inching ever nearer. So what is the Christian to do in anticipation of that? We look back to the person of Christ, we live in the work of Christ, and we look forward to the return of Christ. Let's stand. As we go about this week and the rest of this Christmas season and certainly well beyond it, let us be very diligent to live in the benefits of the first coming of Christ while we confidently hope for His second coming. And we do that by drawing near to Him now, holding fast to our confession of hope and gathering with other believers for mutual edification as we confidently and eagerly await the coming of our great God and King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you how clearly you speak to matters. We thank you for sending Christ in the first place, for giving us assurance that you fulfill your promises. You've never been a God to lie. You've never been a God to change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we hold fast to your promises, Lord. Help us when our hands grow tired of clinging. Remind us that you are holding us. Help us when we grow tired and weary of what's transpiring in the world around us. Help us to remember that if we rest in you, that we will renew our strength and that we will mount up on eagles' wings. And you will refresh us and renew us, Lord. Help us in this season with all of the hustle and bustle of the holiday, Lord, that we would keep Christ at the forefront. We pray this in the name of Him, His precious name. Amen.